0: Many sports are known for their famous rivalries Red Sox versus Yankees, Johnson versus Bird, Canada versus Russia, and the sport of rock climbing is no exception. In the early years of big wall climbing in Yosemite, you could not find two men more at odds than Royal Robins and Warren Harding. They not only longed for the same objectives, they were on total opposite ends as individuals in every possible way. Their good-natured rivalry, however, all came to a head when one of the men decided to take matters into his own hands, permanently altering a rock climbing route that had been placed on the granite monolith El Capitan. What followed was a rift between the two men that would never be mended and a sad ending to what would come to be known as the golden age of rock climbing. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Little Yo Pod, the podcast where we bring you stories from Yosemite and the Sierra Nevada Mountains. I'm Laura Jackson, and this week I will be bringing you the story of Robbins versus Harding, two of the world's greatest rock climbers in the 1950s and 60s, and the event that occurred that would change their lives and rock climbing forever. If you have visited Yosemite during the summer months, you may have seen the open-air tram tour, also known as the Green Dragon, buzzing around Yosemite Valley's scenic areas. The tram is pulled by a Kelly Green semi-truck and has bench seats for up to 70 passengers, with an elevated princess seat at the front of the tram, where a tour guide outfitted with a Madonna-style headset sits, regaling the passengers with history and information of the sights of Yosemite. And for a brief time, I was in that princess seat. The Green Dragon Tour was one of the more intimidating tours to host. It is a lot of talking and a lot of eyes on you while traveling backward at 35 miles per hour, but it came to be one of my favorite programs. The audience was always great and incredibly receptive considering the absurdity of the situation. And there was something kind of godlike about having your voice piped into an exclusive group of people. I also loved this tour because I got to talk about one of my favorite subjects in Yosemite, the history of rock climbing. About 20 minutes into the tour, the tram stops at El Capitan, where everyone looks up at the behemoth rock formation to try to spot climbers. Everyone bursts with excitement when they spy the tiny specks on the side of the rock, always much smaller than they expected, giving them a great perspective of the enormousness of El Cap. Wow, they say. Those people are crazy. I explain that climbers are, for the most part, not crazy, and that if proper precaution is exercised, climbing is actually one of the, sta- the safest sports, at least statistically. And then they ask the question I always dread. Have you ever climbed El Capitan? I don't know how to explain the complexity of the type of climbing style that El Cap demands, even for its, quote, easier routes to the top. So I simply said no, that I wasn't that type of climber. They shrugged their shoulders and said, maybe one day. Like, it's an objective I simply have not achieved because I haven't worked hard enough for it. But the truth is, I will probably never climb El Capitan based to Summit because, from everything I have heard, climbing that thing sucks. <laughs> Basically, you're stuck on the side of a cliff for days at a time with a partner you hopefully get along with, hauling all of your provisions and gear and temperatures sometimes exceeding 100 degrees. You have to poop in a sealed PVC pipe lined with a bag, and the climbing is not even technically rock climbing. It's called aid climbing, the use of anchors and gear placed in the rock, which one ascends by clipping and climbing nylon ladders. Some people find this fun. But I am not one of those people, and most climbers I know are not either. If this sounds really hard, you're right. That's why El Capitan did not see its first ascent until the late 1950s, a good 20 years after technical rock climbing had come to Yosemite Valley. Before El Cap and Half Dome had been climbed, early climbs in Yosemite were limited to mostly base-level routes, or the more ambitious valley spires such as the Lost Arrow Spire by Yosemite Falls. The Lost Arrow Spire was climbed in the 1940s over the course of four days, with the climbers resting overnight on sketchy ledges and subsisting on dried fruit and gummy bears. Up to that point, it was the longest amount of time climbers had spent on a rock face without coming down. After some time, however, even the spires began to lack the excitement craved by hardcore climbing pioneers. And so they turned their attention to the challenges presented by the big walls of Yosemite. The 1950s and 60s were considered the golden age of climbing in Yosemite Valley. Young men disenchanted by the effects of World War II and yearning for something beyond the prescribed normalcy of suburban life were lured by the siren song of Yosemite Valley. These young people lived in the the dirt and out of their cars, sometimes not bathing for days or even weeks at a time, wearing their grease and grime like a badge of honor. This is where the term dirtbag originated. They lived on little to no money with hardly enough to eat and sustained themselves by pilfering bits of food left over by tourists. But none of that mattered. They were there to climb, and rock climbing fed their souls. For some, it would become a full-time obsession and preoccupation, eschewing all comfort and hints of what would be considered a respectable path in life to pioneer new routes and keep racking up those vertical miles. One of those men was rock climbing legend Rel Robbins, a stoic philosopher type who, despite living conditions, always maintained a respectable appearance and demeanor. Robbins came to Yosemite in 1952 and was immediately raising the bar for climbers with his brave ascents. He was the first person to pioneer a route up the northwest face of Half Dome, a 2,500 vertical ascent from base to summit with no obvious discernible line from the ground. Robbins approached Dome with a solemn duty to climb the route with style and finesse, with no haphazard move or silly mistakes. When he wasn't climbing or mapping out routes, Robbins was reading philosophy and writing essays detailing his adventures. Getting to the top is nothing, quoted Robbins. How you do it is everything. It was important to him that he made his ascents clean, and in later years, Robbins was the person who had proselytized the use of clean gear, or gear that would not damage the rock, and good climbing stewardship. He was motivated by his personal ambition and ethics, but he was also motivated by good old-fashioned competition. Warren Harding arrived in Yosemite not long after Robbins and showed equal promise. But while Robbins was well-kempt and waxed on about the purity of climbing, Harding seemed to present a liability to the cause. Harding's wild demeanor was evident upon first glance. By comparison to Robbins, he was a total mess. His hair was greasy and uncombed. His clothes were tattered. He drove fast cars and kept company with loose women. And he always had a jug of wine by his side on or off the wall robbins was disturbed by harding's character and despised his climbing style basically to get up the rock any which way he could style and ethics be damned equally harding did not particularly care for robbins dubbing him the leader of the quote valley christians the two could not have been more different but they were both pioneering new routes in yosemite valley each even more impressive than the last and they were outdoing each other at every turn But like many rivalries, Robbins and Harding were not always so at odds with each other. While never exclusive climbing partners, they did do some other routes together. The two even collaborated on the first unsuccessful attempt of the northwest face of Half Dome, but the rock was so steep and overhanging, it was dizzying just to look up at it. The team had to retreat after the first 400 feet. Afterward, Harding had to leave the valley to take care of some business, but Robbins, unbeknownst to Harding, started planning another attempt. He went back to square one, Robin style, and made a meticulous plan. He mapped the route and anticipated any obstacle, planned his days on the wall, and organized his gear. He carefully selected his team, and in 1957, Robin started climbing, leaving Harding far behind. When Harding found out what was happening, he raced back to the valley as quickly as his Corvette would take him. But when he arrived, they were already too far ahead, and it looked like they were going to make it. When Robbins and his team pulled over the top of Half Dome after five days on the wall, Harding met him, having climbed the Half Dome cable system set in place for day hikers to reach the summit. Hey, congratulations, you lucky rotten bastards, Harding said, handing the men sandwiches and fresh water that he had hiked up. The war was on. We've heard it at every turn in rock climbing accomplishments. What's next? With Half Dome behind them, the only thing that was left was the granddaddy of them all the Goliath El Capitan. Less than one year after Robbins climbed Half Dome, Warren Harding started making plans for El Cap. This is significant and perhaps indicative of Harding's contempt for what Robbins had done, because everyone knew that El Cap was impossible. It wasn't even worth considering. It was just too big and too blank. But Harding did not abide the rules that had been accepted in the climbing community, rules mostly set by Robbins and his crew. Harding approached the project in an unusual and controversial siege style. He set ropes on sections of the rock, allowing him to move up and down to different stations where he kept supplies. He even had lines that came down to the ground, allowing him to set a section of the climb on El Capitan and then retreat to the comfort of the ground if he wished. By contrast, when Robbins climbed Half Dome, he stayed on the rock the whole time, and it took several days. He kept all of his supplies and hardware with him and slept on the side of the cliff. Harding's approach seemed to defy the whole concept of a first ascent. It took some of the danger and the really hard mental work out of the climb itself. Harding's time on El Cap seemed almost like a party. He took his time drilling bolts and hammering pitons along the way, hanging out on big ledges, nursing his big bottle of wine, coming down when he felt like it or when he needed to restock his wine jugs. But even Harding grew tired of this. Several partners had abandoned him along the way, and he had to keep roping new people into his project. So after 47 non-consecutive days over the course of the year on the wall, he pushed through the top section of El Capitan in one epic all-night hammering frenzy. Harding and his team topped out in November 1958, where they celebrated with drinks on the top and signed the Summit Register. Kind of a silly gesture, seeing as how there is an easy walkable path to the top of El Cap from the west side. By the way, that's how climbers get down from El Cap. They walk. Despite the length of time, it was still no small accomplishment. Harding's team had pioneered new techniques and invented a lot of new equipment that made the route possible and would still be used after that. Still, Robbins was not impressed. He believed that one ought to remain on the rock for the entirety of a first ascent and not rely on umbilical lines to the ground to resupply and mentally refresh. It's difficult to understand what motivates a climber. For Royal Robbins, it may have been to prove he was a better person than the supposed role models he had grown up with. His biological father abandoned him when he was a child, and his stepfather was an abusive alcoholic. Robbins shied away from the crutch of mind-altering substances himself and admonished the lifestyle in general. Having seen no good and only awful results of alcoholism, Robbins may have been disturbed by Harding's devil-may-care attitude and unable to express his admiration or even respect for someone who celebrated such a hedonistic lifestyle. For Harding, he readily admitted that there was really nothing in life that he was particularly good at until he found rock climbing, saying he could only, quote, do what required brute stupidity. It is a true wonder that these two men arrived in Yosemite at approximately the same time with the same level of confidence and comparable skill, but with completely different ideals for the sport. For Robbins, it was his meditation, his passage into a higher realm. For Harding, it was a way to make a name for himself and to earn prestige and fame in the world of climbing. But Robbins and Harding needed each other. Their relationship was symbiotic. They lifted each other up in a weird, dysfunctional way. They excelled through absolute competition and, some may say, egocentric motivation. Robbins admitted this himself in the film Valley Uprising, saying that he had become jealous of the attention Harding was getting at the height of their climbing rivalry. Harding attests that he never cared what Robbins thought of his style, yet he responded to the criticism of his ascent on the nose of El Capitan by committing himself to set a new route on the cliff's most intimidating wall, the Wall of Early Morning Light, also known as the Dawn Wall. If you were to split L Cap down the middle, the nose would be the center of the rock, the side of the first ascent by Harding in 1958, and the Dawn Wall is the section on the right side of the rock if you were standing in front and looking straight at it. This is also known as climber's right. What makes the Dawn Wall so significant to rock climbing is that, unlike the west-facing side of El Cap, which is highly featured with cracks, ledges, and flakes, the Dawn Wall looks like a blank canvas. There are few, if any, ways to hold onto the rock in many sections, making it one of the most difficult climbing walls in the world even to this day. When Harding decided he would climb the Dawn Wall, he also planned to stay on it until he finished, a daunting task at best, with unknown hardship and consequences. Harding and his partner Dean Caldwell started the route in late October El Cap can be miserably hot in the summer time sometimes pushing a hundred to a hundred and ten degrees Fahrenheit so climbers wait until the autumn when cooler temperatures give them a better chance for success with that however comes the possibility of inclement weather November sees early winter storms sometimes, wind and rain mostly, with the possibility of snow. Knowing this, Harding and Caldwell set out armed with provisions, crude sleeping arrangements, and lots and lots of expansion bolts. They were on the wall for 22 days when a huge storm rolled in, halting their effort and worrying loved ones on the ground, tracking their progress. Having no way to communicate with the climbers, the National Park Service began to organize a rescue effort. But when they tossed ropes down to the climbers from hovering helicopters, Harding and Caldwell refused to cooperate. Harding scribbled out a note, stuffed it in an old tuna can, and threw it down to the ground. When the note was recovered, it read, A rescue is unwanted, unwarranted, and will not be accepted. After spending a hundred hours cramped and soaking wet in their tents, the storm cleared and the climbing continued. Harding and Caldwell topped out after 27 consecutive days, every one of them spent on the wall with meager supplies remaining. They had only packed enough for 12 days and near the end they were eating only a half a can of sardines and a bit of canned fruit each day while still hammering bolts into the granite and hauling their supplies up after them. When they pulled over the top, they were met with a media frenzy. Reporters and camera crews from all over the world greeted the men with questions and pleas for interviews, and of course, lots of champagne. Harding had to duck behind a rock, exhaustion and socially overwhelmed, where he admittedly sobbed his eyes out. When he composed himself and joined the celebration, one reporter asked why they climbed. Without hesitation, Harding blurted, Because we're insane, there can't be any other reason. I told you, big wall climbing sucks. (laughs) After the excitement had subsided, Robbins had his chance to respond, and he still was not happy. Harding had certainly stayed on the wall for the entirety of the climb, but Robbins claimed he had beat the rock into submission with with his excessive use of expansion bolts. These are bolts that are hammered into the rock, permanently marring the feature. Robbins felt that the setting of 300 bolts was utterly unnecessary and a crime to the clean-climbing ethics he was trying to forge in the valley. Enraged by the absurd media circus and the complete disregard for the integrity of El Capitan, Robbins made it his mission to set things right. For those unfamiliar with the ethics of rock climbing, there is an implied sacredness given to the first person to set a new route. First ascensionists get to name, classify, and grade the route based on their perception of the difficulty, and there are rarely any changes made to it. To take matters into one's own hands based on personal feelings is a bold statement and usually does not go down well. But Robbins had reached the end of his tether with Harding. He couldn't stand the thought of all those bolts disgracefully hammered into his beloved rock. So without Harding's consent, or consulting the climbing community really, Robbins packed his hammer and chisel and started up Harding's Donwell route. He started climbing quickly, and as soon as he moved above one bolt, Robbins leaned over, shoved a chisel between the bolt and the rock, and struck it with a hammer. This act sent the bolt head flying into space, rendering it useless. With every bolt he chopped, he erased another part of Harding's route. Robbins chopped 50 bolts, fully determined to keep working until he restored the Don wall to its pristine glory. Bolt after bolt flew from El Capitan toward the valley below as he assiduously pressed on. He was driven by his ethics, but he was also driven by rage and by his own admission, pure hubris. To be able to take a moment to consider what he was doing must have taken mighty strength. But Robbins was nothing if not a strong person in every conceivable way and he was not above admitting fundamental truths, hard as they may be. Robin suddenly stopped chopping, and he saw something he hadn't before. He saw the route with complete clarity and realized something about Harding's work. It was not contrived. It was not messy. It was actually pretty good. It was actually exceptional. Every bolt Harding placed was perfect, and the moves were splendid. For although Robbins may have been driven by his ego, he was not completely blinded by it. He saw the work of true talent, the work of an equal. Robbins later said, I was overcome by admiration for the difficulty of the climb. It's hard to admit it, but I think some of my reaction was, Harding was getting all the credit, and I felt I should get some. And that was a personal thing. I suppose it was an ego thing. Robbins climbed through Harding's route, and the rest of it remained in place. Humility overcame him, but the damage had been done. Harding was understandably upset over the circumstances. It wasn't that he needed Robins' approval, but he had done what had been expected of him, and it still wasn't good enough. After that, Harding stopped trying to appease anyone's expectation. And although he had many great adventures after that, he and Robbins never reconciled, and both men started pushing into their later years the golden age of rock climbing, had come to an end. Warren Harding's life played out like his climbing, reckless and unpredictable. He continued drinking heavily well into middle age, living at home with his mother for much of the time. He could never quite settle into any sort of routine or regular working schedule, but one couldn't say he was unhappy. He was just doing things his own way. He always did things his own way never really fitting in, never placating societal norms. Royal Robbins set many respected routes all over the world. His methodical planning and discipline, as well as his commitment to environmental ethics and rock climbing, made him one of the most influential adventure pioneers of the 20th century. Both men wrote several books on the subject of rock climbing, as well as autobiographical accounts of their time at the top. The books read just like the men themselves. Robbins' autobiography was titled To Be Brave, while Harding's was titled, Downward Bound. It's hard to imagine the type of anguish both men must have felt after what happened on the Don Wall. Robbins was always a bit more candid with his experience in Harding, but the resentment never lifted. Harding could joke about Robbins' buttoned-up demeanor and purity, but looking at him in photos and interviews, you can almost see his raw and primal nature bursting from him. I don't believe Harding climbed because he was insane. I believe he climbed because he had to. And he needed Robbins to push him to always be a better climber, as Robbins needed Harding to show him that he was indeed imperfect, and that no amount of planning or pursuing flawlessness could ever prepare him for that truth. When looking up at El Capitan, among the cracks and ledges, you can also see distinct vertical black streaks. They almost look like water stains. But when you zoom in, you find out that the streaks are lichen, algae and fungus that exist in a mutually beneficial relationship. The algae performs photosynthesis, creating nutrients for itself and the fungus, while the fungus provides a structure, a host, for the algae to attach itself to. Relationships like this exist everywhere in nature, where neither could survive on their own in certain situations. They gain strength from each other. But while the organisms are not aware of their dependence, the simple fact remains that nothing can ever go it alone. The true success of a symbiotic relationship is growth. We see it in nature as much as in the success and fallibility of the human spirit. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you like this stuff, please please rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss a future episode and to help other people find it as well. If you'd like to contact me with any questions or comments or ideas for future episodes, you can email me at littleyopod at gmail.com. And you can like the Little Yopod Facebook page for updates as well as photos and other resources for this episode, uh, past episodes, the Sierra Nevada Mountains and Yosemite National Park. Check the show notes for resources and for an in-depth version of this story. I recommend you check out the film Valley Uprising. It's a 2014 feature film that covers the history of climbing in Yosemite National Park. This film is not stuffy, nor is it for the faint of heart or anyone who is terrified of heights. Um, I super highly recommend it. It's a really fun, fun one to watch. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I'm Laura Jackson. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful day.